We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are in the clubhouse for the first time, welcome. To those who, are, who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight, we say welcome home to the clubhouse, although it's his first time here as a guest, uh, Greg Prince, who is the author of The Happiest Recap, published by Banner Day Press. I think most of you in the clubhouse know Greg's background, but those listening to the podcast may not. So just to fill you in a bit, Greg Prince is co-author of Faith and Fear and Flushing, the blog for Mets fans who like to read, and author of the book of the same name, an intensely personal memoir of his life as a Mets fan. Greg has written about baseball for the New York Times, ESPN.com, the Huffington Post, and Yahoo Sports, and contributed to the documentary The Last Play at Shea. A communications consultant away from the diamond, Greg lives on Long Island, but will always consider Shea Stadium his spiritual home. So Greg, welcome. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. Thank you. And uh, we'll get to Shea, certainly, because... I consider that my spiritual home, too. Uh, but first, to just get us going, just tell us how this... This is a four-volume series. Uh, at the moment, you have The Happiest Recap, first base, 1962 to 1973, closing in on second base, just about. But if you could just tell us how this whole series came about. Sure. Um, I think the, the impetus for The Happiest Recap... Uh, was looking at the calendar about four years ago, which would be 2009, and realizing the 50th anniversary of the team was coming up, and that's being founded in 62, and wanting to commemorate it in some way on our blog, Faith and Fear and Flushing. Wasn't thinking about a book at the time, really. And I guess you know, 2009, you might recall, was a pretty miserable year in Mets land. <laughs> and of the first year without our spiritual home, Shea Stadium. So I think uh, it was just sort of reaching for happier memories, maybe, and got to thinking about you know, the greatest games in Mets history. Well, I guess I didn't want to just sort of make a list and say, here's number one, here's number two, and like that. So I began to piece together in my mind the idea of the greatest game by game number, if you will. Because, and and that, that sort of ends with opening day for most people. Every year around opening day, you'll say, hey, what were some of the best opening days in Mets history? And you know, you'll name a few, will rattle off the head. Nobody ever says, what was the best second game in Mets history? Or the best 55th game in Mets history, and so on and so forth. So um, I decided to try that. <laughs> Um, as my, my friend Sharon Chapman is here tonight taking pictures uh, and took the picture on the, uh, the back of the book said uh, sort of looking at the, the Hebrew calendar versus the Roman calendar <laughs> as opposed to say doing this date in Mets history uh, you know what was the best 55th, 58th game anyway I, I, it became a lot of research and it became an obsession and it became a blog series as planned uh, through the 2011 season which was technically the Mets 50th year and it was fun to do, and I got a nice response to it. And every now and then, I was asked, is this your next book? I thought, well, 
I don't know, is it? <laughs> and uh, I got to thinking again, that, you know, here we are, 50th anniversary, and well, I've got all this material, and I've got all this other material, but stuff that didn't make the countdown, if you will, though, you know, a great 55th game that wasn't <laughs> the best. And I'm pretty obsessive about collecting information that way, and I had so much left over at the end of 2011, I said, why not? <laughs> so um, I got to thinking about, well, could you put all this in a book? Well, you could put all, the, all, all this in a book, and the book would be very thick. <laughs> so it became a four-volume series with the idea of breaking it up chronologically into about approximately into quarters. And the first of them is you know, the, the one that we have here tonight, 62 to 73, and the others uh, that are in various processes of production are second base, 74 to 86, third base, 87 to 99, and home, originally 2000, 2011, I now call that 2000, and beyond, because the longer we're going on, it seems the more elliptical uh, the end date for this is. But uh, you know, beyond the uh, kind of giving you the logistics of it, the, the real impetus here, I think, is wanting to celebrate Mets history in a way that a fan who lived it might have experienced it, might celebrate it. And in, in that regard, not just the sort of, I kind of call the pre-approved team narrative of what happened, which is we were founded in 62, it was wacky. Uh, before you knew it, uh, you know, Gil Hodges and Tom Seaver in 69 happened, 73 happens, you trade Tom Seaver, but you know, there's redemption in 86, and then it gets kind of murky. They never really <laughs> talk about it unless there's like, you know, there's like one or two little highlights, Piazza hitting a home run after 9-11, and maybe if something good happened recently, that'll get mentioned. I, I wanted to fill in those blanks for my fellow Mets fans, because I think we all are kind of comprised of those moments as fans, and I could probably name several examples, I hopefully could name 500 examples, because that's how many games are, are in the series, but uh, the, the one I keep coming back to to kind of explain it, if you're, especially if, if you're my vintage, uh, was a game from 1980, uh, which is known in shorthand as the Steve Henderson game, which very uh, briefly was a game that the Mets were losing 6 nothing. Then losing 6-2, going to the ninth, and they came back, and they won on Steve Henderson 3-run homer in the bottom of the ninth. And that alone is pretty compelling, but at that moment, the Mets were under new ownership, which seemed promising at the time, <laughs> and they were, they were you know, renovating Shea Stadium, and they had a, an advertising campaign, The Magic is Back. And when you see the... Uh, the, the apple in the top hat today outside of City Field, and what probably isn't known by anybody who wasn't around them if they haven't heard the story is that that, that hat is like a vest, vestigial limb <laughs> from an advertising campaign called The Magic is Back and the idea was that the Mets under new ownership were going to invoke the Giants and the Dodgers and the good old days and the 69 Mets and they, which was sort of a considered kind of, kind of a joke at the time in 1980 because the Mets were not winning anything but somehow for a few weeks and a couple of months in 1980, they got on this incredible roll for them. And they played above 500 for a few months, and they were always coming from behind. And the culmination, in a way, of that was the Steve Henderson game. And that's why 
the Steve Henderson game resonates because it was part of a larger story, and, and that is sort of what I want to tell. These aren't, oh, I use the word recap, obviously, in homage to Bob Murphy, but these aren't just, you know, very quick baseball reference type things, you know, two outs in the ninth, Steve Henderson's arm run, good night, next game. You know, we tell those stories, and we talk about, you know, what it was like to be a Mets fan or what was going on around the Mets, and you know, we do that from, you know, the first win in Mets history in 62 all the way to probably uh, sometime after 2011 at this rate. So it's just an idea of celebrating not, not only the, the games we all know about, the Buckner game, Tommy Agee making great catches, Piazza hitting the home run after 9-11, but the Steve Henderson games, if you will, and games that aren't even as famous as that necessarily, or the game that you went to last week, shall we say, except, you know, some other year, uh, where you came home and you said, I can't believe that game. Can you believe that so-and-so hit that home run, that so-and-so... You know, through that shutout, and then there's something a little more to it, and that's really what the, these 500 games are about. And something that I think a lot of people here can certainly relate to, uh, my guess being probably uh, all Mets fans here, and I'm sure many listening to the podcast are as well. If you could just take us back to your memories of your first when you fell in love with the Mets, basically. Okay. Well, I was. Six years old, which happened to coincide with 1969, and I, I feel bad for anybody who didn't fall in love with the Mets in 1969, because that was the moment. And uh, you know, I, I, it's funny to me that I often read critiques of Mets fandom that claim, "Oh, you know, this is a fan base that that uh, indulges in self-loathing and, and wants to be sort of the other." in their market or have some kind of psychological problem. <laughs> and it wasn't like that at all. It was just this incredible, magical thing that I wanted to be a part of. And I, I came into the story somewhere in the late summer of 69 where the Mets were chasing the Cubs and catching the Cubs and passing the Cubs. And I thought this was the greatest thing in the world. I didn't have any real reason to want to be a baseball fan. There was nobody in my family who was a baseball fan. But I, I had the sense that this was, you know, part, part of being an, a regular American kid. Not, not that I was, you know, from another country or anything. I just, you know, like every kid, you always feel weird when, when you're on the outside or something. And uh, I just latched onto the idea of baseball, and I latched onto the Mets. Uh, I think the signal event for me was a, uh, a cartoon that ran on the back page of the Post every day coming down the stretch that year uh, the Mets represented by a duck and the Cubs represented by a bear and they were duking it out and I fell in love with the duck no, no, no offense to my friend here who's got, who brings a uh, what a Mets bear to our proceedings tonight um, and, and then I'll just add as an aside that's another thing I last week um, you know, I guess two Sundays ago now Kirk Neuenheis had a walk-off home run against the Cubs I probably enjoyed more than any Mets fan alive because anytime the Mets can come back on the Cubs, to me it's September of 1969 again. And I've re been reading for decades that the Cubs are this, you know, lovable loser. And I don't understand it intrinsically. I understand how long it's been since they won a World Series or won a pennant. But like, to me, the Cubs are the mean old bear from the back page of the Post. And anytime that we can beat them um, is a joy. So, you know, that, that's where I came in in 69. And, I had the sense it wasn't always going to be like that, but, you know, I wasn't, I was hooked, and here we are. 
Did you go to your first game that year? I didn't go to a game until 73, actually. 73? Uh, Just a a, a function of the fact that nobody in my family was a baseball fan, and this was sort of something I was doing upstairs on my own, and I don't think my my parents were more than vaguely aware, or or they knew about it, but it was, you know, kind of a don't ask, don't tell type of thing. Uh, You know, the, the kid likes baseball, that's nice. And I actually went with a camp group. In 1973, I went to a, a kosher day camp called Camp Avenue in Long Beach, where I grew up. And uh, so I was you know, pretty well-schooled in the ways of Metzdom before I actually got to Shea Stadium at the relatively ripe age of 10 years old. And, you know, I, I would love to tell one of those great stories about I never saw greener grass, and it was just a great moment. But actually, it was a rainy day, and <laughs> we had lousy seats, and the Mets got beat by the Astros. <laughs> but but the, the, the point was that, like, I was finally there in this place right. I had seen on TV and maybe, you know, been in the backseat of the car while we, we drove to LaGuardia or something. And uh, it became one of those places I just wanted to keep going to and going to, and I... You know, even now that uh, Shea is no longer here and City Field has taken its place, I don't think I've quite lost that uh, that motivation. That like, well, I was kept from going for you know at the age of six, seven, eight years old. So uh, I'm still kind of making up for it. I, I would think I've made up for it by now. How many games? How many games a year do you go to at this point? Uh, I think it's it's averaged about thirty a year in the City Field era. And one of the nice things that happens when you're known as a Mets fan in certain circles when you're Known uh, you know, for blogging and writing books and so forth, is that people kind of seek you out with their tickets. <laughs> and um, somebody asked me on opening day this year, "Do you have a plan?" Meaning a season ticket plan or something. I said, "Yes, to go to as many games <laughs> as I can go to." And uh, it just sort of happens. And fortunately and unfortunately, the Mets are not a hot ticket now, so uh, plenty of good seats available, as Bob Murphy would say. And actually, speaking of Bob Murphy, uh, you dedicate the book to Bob Murphy. And was uh, was he your favorite broadcaster, or does it, it was he the first one you remember? Well, you know, Bob, Ralph Kiner, and Lindsey Nelson were you know, one entity to me as a kid because they did every game. Two of them would be on TV, one of them would be on radio, and they would switch throughout. And the game was on Channel Nine. Ralph would do the first six innings because then he'd have to go down and get ready for Kiner's corner. And, you know, Bob was would wind up the games usually on radio, and that would lead him to do the happy recap, which the title, uh, you know, again, I, I think a lot of what this book is about is our, our dog whistles from the Mets fan, and I doubt anybody really needs an explanation of, of why the happiest recap, but just, you know, for the record, uh, Bob Murphy would come on after a, a Mets win and say, we'll be back with the happy recap right after these messages on the WFAN Mets Radio Network or the WHN Mets Radio Network or whichever the flagship station was at the time. And it wasn't a big deal. And he wasn't the kind of self-promoting announcer who would you know, say, boy, I, we sure want to get a happy recap today. Come on, uh, come on, Coos, strike him out or anything like that. You know, it was always, there, there was a certain air of detachment to him, even though he was you know, famously once checked into a hotel under the name Robert Metz. Because <laughs> that's just... <laughs> he was had so become his identity. So you know, I I think I really came to appreciate Murph in his later years. You know, and when I hear old tapes and CDs now and again, one of the other uh, benefits of being known as a uh, Mets fan and blogger is people send you these things sometimes. And I've been lucky enough to be given you know CDs and tapes from '62 and '64 and '69, and you hear Lindsay and you hear Ralph and you hear Bob all in their prime. 
And I remember that these guys taught me what baseball was. And Murph probably kept doing it longer than anybody. Ralph Rockwood is, you know, still shows up now and again, but, you know, Murphy became my companion. It's like he became every Mets fan's companion. Anybody who owned a radio for 40 years. Right. And, uh, you know, as I, I, I have to confess that, you know, when, when Lindsey Nelson left and Steve Albert came along to replace him the first time there was anybody who wasn't one of those three guys doing the games on a regular basis, I was sort of like, hey, we got a modern young guy in there and a guy I've seen do the news on Channel 2 and, you know, he does Nets games or Islanders games and I thought it was kind of cool at first and then I was like, you know what, Lindsey Nelson was great and Bob and Ralph were great and, you know, just came to appreciate them and, and, and you know, you could talk about, uh, you know, things that are just quintessential Mets and, you know, Bob Murphy is at the top of the list. And uh, he worked in Shea Stadium, uh, which we, you spoke about briefly. Your thoughts on, you mentioned it was your spiritual home. I think it's something that you have to be a, a certain age Mets fan to, to understand because you look at City Field and it's, a, it's, it's beautiful compared to Shea Stadium. But just speaking for myself... I wish that Chase Stadium was, was still here. Uh, but that probably has to do, you know, some psychiatrist would take that apart. Uh, but do you, uh, what are your thoughts on Shea and City? Well, uh, I had great separation pains from Shea Stadium. Uh, the first, uh, well, the year, the year, once I knew it was going, and I understood every criticism of it. You know, you don't go to 2030, what became you know, my, the last year, I went to 44 games, which... The last month, you know, became it seemed like my full-time job going to Mets games, except not being paid for it. <laughs> but um, you know, you you have to be blind and deaf and have lost of all your senses to not understand what was wrong with Shea Stadium. But it was home, and it was it, it, it transcended just the idea that it was familiar. And now we're going to have a new place right next to it, so it'll be easier. Just. To me, it's, it, it was the Mets. It said Mets. It was built for them, and it was, in that way, built for us. And, you know, I mean, we're, you know, aside from, you know, hey, you know, I, I like the symmetry of, of the outfield fence, and uh, I liked being able to see mostly down the lines, unless you were sitting way back in Lowe's or something. And it just, you know, there weren't a lot of thrills to it, but it got the job done. And when you, you know, associate the sorts of games that are, are in this book, yeah, well, some of these games take place on the road, obviously. But, uh, you know, they became one and the same. And, you know, the Mets won two World Series there. And they won, th- I think, uh, three of their four pennants there. And division titles and wild cards and, you know, everything. It just, it was second nature to say Shea. I still, and it, it's not some sort of political statement on my part when I, every now and then I just say, I'm going to Shea. I don't mean it as I'm giving City Field that name. It's just that's the land where the Mets are. And, you know, I think it's a spiritual home, psychic home, whatever it is. City Field opened. I had a, a great deal of animus for it <laughs> and really had to work to be fair to it because I didn't want it. And it didn't feel like it was built for Mets fans. It felt like it was it was built for a certain strata of, of season ticket holders that perhaps ownership had spoken to and they all agreed that it wouldn't it be nice that we didn't have to deal with whatever it was at Shea? But uh, I've gotten comfortable there, I'd say. So it probably took them bringing the fences in and painting them blue uh, to make me feel finally to stop complaining about it. 
And you know, it, it, I, I think ideally, I would go to City Field for you know the, the concessions and to have somewhere to stand or to sit if it's raining and and, and to chat and to meet people. And then I would go to my seat and it would be Shea Stadium again. And I, you know that, that occurred to me like the first week, and I've never really lost that feeling. But you know, City Field is here now, and it's where the Mets are, so it's where I'm going to be. And uh, going back to Shea, up until City, who are your favorite Mets through the years? Uh, you know, ha- having come along in '69, Tom Seaver's always going to be first on that list, uh, or number 41, if you will, on that list. And you know, he was just the first guy I gravitated to. And really, you know, I mean, I. You know, we, we were told after 9-11, don't use words like hero to describe athletes. And I've heard so many stories about Seaver maybe not being the nicest person in real life. But I don't want to meet him. I just want to keep him on that pedestal. I've never met him. I saw him, like, from one... I was in whatever section one night a few years ago, and he was down making one of his ambassadorial appearances on behalf of the Mets. And I was awestruck just seeing him, you know, a level away. I, I don't need to find out that he really doesn't want to be told how great he is. So uh, he's number one. Uh, your, your recent guest, Dwight Gooden, uh, a, uh, if not a close second, then certainly right up there um, for all he's been through, but for all he gave us. And sometimes I worry that, you know, I I sometimes feel like I'm enabling him with my <laughs> my support, you know, um, my, my friend Sharon is here tonight. Happened to be with me in the uh, the Mets Hall of Fame a few years ago when he just wandered by. He was just there for some reason, and I had to tamp down the aspect to just start applauding <laughs> because this is a guy who I, I get. I get he was one of the first Mets stars who was younger than me, so we're, we're basically contemporaries. He was younger than me by a couple of years, but he was still like, my God, that's quite good. That's Doctor K. That's twenty four and four. 1.53 ERA right in front of me, and this is a guy who's had a, had a hellish life also, and done things with his family that I don't understand, that I don't know, and let people down, and yet I still want to just walk up to him and start applauding and get this entire museum and store that's attached to it, and he's standing ovation like, just walk away. And Sharon was nice. Do you want to take your picture with him? And I kind of want to say no. <laughs> like let's 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 leave him be. And. Uh, you know, there's some other other players along the Gardo Alfonso, Jose Reyes, Rico Bronia, guys like that. That, 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 that kind of drips into like the you know Joe Orsolak and people I just have the Melvin Mora people I have these these weird uh, fascinations and crushes on. But uh, mo- most Mets, uh, you know, say for the Aubrey Hebner and Vince Coleman, like everybody else, <laughs> can find a soft spot for. You know, that, that's why I wanted to ask you the question. I had a feeling it was going to be Tom Seaver. At, we're close in age, and same thing here. Uh, but the beauty of it is, when you when you ask a true Mets fan or any baseball fan who it's going to be about their favorite team, you, you get answers like Joe Orsolak and, and people like this, uh, Melvin Mora, who you would never expect. It's just something that hits somebody emotionally for whatever reason, you know. And, and they're usual. Orsolak in particular, I mentioned Rico Bronia, guys like Steve Henderson, even though he couldn't come except for the. Tom Seaver being traded, you know, I think it's the guys who play for you in the really bad years who you sort of forge almost a symbiosis with because now you're in this together. And if you're if you're watching Joe Orsolak in 1993, 1994, and if you're 
you know, if you're falling in love briefly with Omir Santos as I did, <laughs> for about you know two weeks in 2009, it's, it's it's not because it's popular. It's not because there's a bandwagon for it. It's because like, hey, I really like this guy, and look at that. You know, he won a game for us. So, you know, he, he hit a ball that needs to be reviewed, and. And uh, it went over the fence, and uh, wow, he should be catching every day for the next 10 years. And then, of course, he's gone <laughs> the next year, and you, you sort of snap out of it. And, you know, right right now I'm in love with Eric Young, and maybe not quite on that level, but Eric Young Jr. has been here a week. And right. it's like, Eric Young has infused the Mets with the energy they so desperately need, and by next month... Give I'll it a week. Eric Young. Yeah, yeah so, uh, it's like Mike Vail. Yeah, so, you know, it's easy, it's easy exactly. So it's, it's easy to fall in love with Keith Hernandez and Gary Carter, and I certainly right. did, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great tapestry of, uh, of Mets, and, you know, I hope that's reflected uh, in the series. Absolutely. Well, let's turn to the tapestry of, uh, of Mets fans. Anyone would like to lead off with, uh, with a question? We've left them all speechless. <laughs> <laughs> What was your research process for you going through all microfiche? Were you actually watching all games? Uh, combination of whatever I could get my hands on, I suppose. Microfiche, no, because fortunately there's enough material online between the Times, the Sporting News, Google News Archives. I have I've tried to save every baseball book I've ever owned, every yearbook and program and so forth. Um, I'm, t- I'm told I'm blessed with an unusual memory, but you can't, uh, you know, you can't let things like, oh, I'm pretty sure that happened. You know, you have to do your, uh, your double checking. Baseballreference.com, which has every box score. I don't think I could have done this easily. You know, it's not easy, but it's, you know, I don't have to leave the house for the most part. So, combination of things. Uh, and then, uh, if I have footage, I'll watch it, if I have all games on it. Well, one of the things I've been able to do here, and I hope I'm not breaking any copyright laws, is, you know, transcribing play-by-play now and again, which, you know, you know no reproductions, uh, accounts and all that. I don't think anybody's coming after me for quoting Bob Murphy and what he said the night the Mets clinched their division in 69. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to add, add that, uh, that to the fabric. So, you know, any sources I can get my hands on and Try not to rely on, on, on my memory. That no, no matter how all encompassing it's supposed to be, all memories are faulty. So, um, but baseball reference is number one, and this retro retro sheet, ultimate Mets database, uh, which you know we're all, they're all connected in one way or another, uh, are right there too. So, but I, I have that. I, I'm fortunately not living in the the age of microfiche. So, I, I think if I was doing this for a team that, that started in 1876, like the Cubs, <laughs> I, I think I would be in the library a lot more. So far, I've been able to stay by my desk. I have a question actually about your future volumes, and it's something is, as you know, my husband is like you. You know, we're you know we're big fans of your writing, but we also have a bond about you know going through the past and going through certain games. Um, something that we like to discuss a lot is Game Six of '86 and how people will always focus on Buckner and family and all that, but they don't focus on the fact that Jim Rice was thrown out of the plate earlier in the game, and that changed the whole dynamic of that game ending up the way it was. So, going on that whole front, games that you were either at, or you remember vividly, was there anything that you were like, oh my gosh, I'm blown away, and I forgot about this, and that changed the whole game, and that's why it you know, became the 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's, all, there's always some detail that surprises me when I, when I get a little deep just to, you know, I'll, I'll address the 86 World Series in a sec, but because I'm, I'm in the middle of it right now, I'm, I'm up to 1991, Volume 3, in terms of my, my writing. And one of the, I don't want to call it a problem because I think it, it's, it benefits the, the end product, but it's only a problem in that well, once I start living through the period, and that really starts with 69, but it really kicks in in the 70s. It's almost like I remember too much, <laughs> and I want to tell. I, I want to tell as much as I know about it without overwhelming. We you know serving the story and all of that. Um, 91, the ge- a game I just wrote up. Uh, some people here may remember. Uh, it was a Saturday afternoon, early May. The Mets were down two runs in the ninth inning. Mackie Sasser comes up as a pinch hitter. It's a home run. They're down by one. Just against the Giants. Mark Carrion comes up. He hits a home run. It's 4-4. And I remember it being a big deal. Howard Johnson wins the game in the 12th inning. And in doing the research, uh, since that, that was asked, um, I did not remember that that was, A, the first time that it ever happened in that history. Which, you know, back-to-back pinch hit home runs, you don't really think about it. But, yes, I was a Met first after 30 years. And then there was the sidebar issue that I learned from research, which I vaguely recall, but Mark Carrion was not thrilled to be part of a record-setting performance because he wanted to play every day. He didn't want to be a pinch hitter. So now it's like, well, do I get into the whole issue of Mark Carrion's unhappiness? And this is one of the few times I sort of curbed my instinct to go deeper. You know, if, if I have something that will kind of tell the story of the Mets in their era, just, again, and I will get back to 86 here, but... Um, Another game earlier that season, and I'm, I'm sure Ed will remember this one. Uh, Mets are down. Second game of the year, they're down a run in the ninth inning. Rick Cerrone comes up, hits a home run. Hubie Brooks, just back from exile, hits a home run to win it in the tenth. And that became one of, one of my games. Not, and it became not just because, like, hey, wasn't that neat? Two home runs like that, and Hubie Brooks came back. But it was sort of an example of the, the Mets' identity undergoing this transformation. Lots of guys playing in weird positions that you wouldn't remember. The Hojo was the opening day shortstop, and they shoved Jeffries to third, and now they're bringing in you know, Vince Coleman as your left fielder, the Cardinal, and Tommy Herger at second baseman, another Cardinal, and Cerrone, who was a big deal Yankee ten years earlier. So it kind of becomes about the era and, and what we were concerned with in those days. Um, 86, and to a certain extent, six, all the postseasons, but 86 really, because everybody who was around, and even if you weren't around, you've heard the stories, knows the basics of 86 and knows the big plays. They know 16 innings in Houston. They know, you know, Jesse Roscoe throwing his glove in there. They know Buckner. And they probably know Sid Fernandez throwing, you know, the, the, the innings in relief and right now getting a home run. But there's a lot that you tend to forget I assume, I haven't forgotten, but a lot that was sort of reinforced by my research. And I wanted to tell the hell out of 86. <laughs> because I think it just does, some things just do get boiled down to their essentials, and this is a place to really revel in the fact that, and again, I'm only doing the wins, but here, when you're doing a postseason, and you would have seen this in 69 and 73, kind of having to acknowledge the games they lost to Baltimore, Cincinnati, and Oakland. Um, you have to talk about the opposition. You have to talk about the setbacks. And you know, I, I entered the 
this, this 86 World Series with the Mets down two games to none. And you can't, to me, you can't just say, well, the Mets were down two games to one. They went up to Boston, and uh, when he got straight a home run, it wasn't that great. You kind of have to explain, like, you know what? Davey Johnson gave the, you know, had a decision. He, he said, you know, first of all, you have to kind of tell who the Red Sox are. You have to tell how the Mets fell into this hole. You have to talk about the hangover from Houston. And to me, you have to talk about how Davey Johnson's big decision to give his guys the day off when they're all supposed to be out there taking batting practice for the cameras. And this becomes now, it's, a, it's an epic within an epic. But you know what? That's who, people who appreciate that, that's who, who these books are written for. So I'm hoping that, um, you know, yeah, you, you will get a, an incredibly detailed description of that 10th inning. And, but you, you will get a lot <laughs> when you read about the 86 post. You'll get a lot when you read about the 88 post season. And, you know, the pennant races didn't go so well, unfortunately. But um, I, I think in terms of, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot of Michael Sergio. More than just hey, a guy came out of the out of the sky with a parachute. <laughs> you know, you, you get Michael. You know, not exactly Michael Sergio's life story, but uh, you know how, how this impacted the game and so forth. So, and all of that was just sort of in my subconscious when I started doing this. Just like any you know any year, and, and I think one of the things I look forward to is uh, you know, like I said, I'm in '91 now. I'm moving into sort of uncharted territory because once you get past the worst team money can buy period, and until you get maybe to Piazza. Who has written about the Bernard Gilkey years, and you know, other than sort of winking at them and so forth? But you know, there's four or five, you know, exciting games a year there. So um, again, put, putting together those years again, uh, all, all, all part of weaving the tapestry. Just a uh, just a question. Uh, you have this vivid memory of, and I understand that the series is about the 500 wins, and you have these vivid memories of these wins. Do you also have, not for the book, but do you have vivid memories of losses in the same way? Uh, I would say that the losses get imprinted on your brain even harder than the wins, sadly. And one of the challenges, especially, really less so in the years where things have gone to hell post, you know, post-Siever and pre-Hernandez, shall we say, you know, the years where they came close... Uh, you know, 87 to 90, you know, without repeating. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we're building up to 86. That's sort of implicit when you're doing 84, 85, getting 86. You've got, you know, you know, great moments and great players. And, you know, these were, you know, for some people, this was their 1969. This is where they came in. I, I want to honor that for the reader who's never had anything written about it, you know, the teams of his childhood in a way. But it's impossible to talk about some great game from 1987 without eventually facing the fact that Terry Pendleton hits a home run that changes everything for the Mets. It's hard to celebrate 100 wins in 1988, and believe me, I do, I, I, you know, because that was a great regular season, an incredibly talented team, but without saying, oh, by the way, you can't just get away with, oh, by the way, the Mets lost in seven <laughs> to the Dodgers. So, you know, this book... You know, I've been asked a couple of times, uh, how about the 500 losses? And I'd say, believe me, it would be more than 500 losses. <laughs> but, um, those, those things do kind of creep in. Yeah. Oh. It's maybe premature since you have a couple more volumes yeah. to write, but do you have any input about what your next big project is going to be once the time to completed? Uh, you know, I've worked on and off on a project about the New York Giants. Um, Baseball or football? Baseball. 
You mentioned earlier uh, the, the Giants Preservation Society meets here. Uh, it's be a fa- fantastic place. Well, the fact that there's actually two New York Giants historical groups, which <laughs> are the outgrowth of another one yeah. that that these guys, uh, you know, God bless them, uh, continue to. You know, they don't just hate the Dodgers. I don't want to say they hate each other. They somehow manage to to find a feud. Um, within their own ranks, but they're all nice guys. I'm fascinated by the idea of this team that hasn't existed for 56 years now and that never got a lot of attention in hindsight the way the Dodgers did. And the Dodgers had so many vivid, colorful characters and have been so chronicled. And, you know, they're, they're taken care of. The Giants, it's just been a spottier thing. I've always sort of thought of them as my, you know, I, I always come back to this, this example of an episode of All in the Family where Mike and Gloria bring home this this, this elderly couple and they, they kind of adopt them as their grandparents. And I, I long ago adopted the Giants as kind of my, my, my grandparent team. And, you know, like I said, I didn't inherit any of this... Uh, baseball gene from my, from my mother or father. Like they were casual Dodger fans. Probably they could be a casual Dodger fan, but they just, I didn't care that much. But um, so I really took to the Giants. The whole idea that there was this other New York National League team. So I've kind of I've, been, I've collected material about it, and I've talked to some people who were there. And one thing that always fascinates me is that a lot of you. Jay said that you know a lot of them are Mets fans. A lot of them are San Francisco Giants fans. Oh yeah, which blows my mind. Yeah. And, and this was before there was the internet and then again direct uh, you know, extra innings packages. But they just hung with them. So I want to kind of write about the, not so much the history of the Giants. There've been some very good ones, but uh, just the idea of the people like us, except their team was taken away, <laughs> and how they kind of stuck with them. And you know I've, I've sort of danced around it a, a bit and. Kind of, it's the kind of topic you should probably jump on while there's still people around to talk about it. Um, but that's that's fascinating. I mean, some some other ideas have come up, but I, I you know, that the happiest recap is something that we did. It's key to the 50th anniversary, but honestly, the 50th anniversary has come and gone, and it's the happiest recap is still going. So you know, I want to get this done. It's it's you know, the great thing about the happiest recap I mentioned 2009 earlier that that's you know, oh god, the Mets are horrible. Let me go write about a, a nice win from 1976 or something. It really is like that sometimes. <laughs> uh, I just lose myself writing about even even seasons that didn't work out so well. It's like, wow, Daryl really hit that ball far. Wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if there's a measurement on that, and I can you know go down a, a, a proverbial rabbit hole where that sort of thing is concerned. So, yes. Um, I want to ask you what your favorite Mets books ever are, and you can't say yours or Matt Silverman's. Okay. And then just your favorite baseball books. Okay. Uh, my favorite Mets book ever is Screwball by Tug McGraw. Um, and I realized I was ghosted by Joe Durso and probably more ghosted than I realized when I read it when I was 12. But I just came to relate <laughs> to Tug McGraw. And this is about the time I read it, he was on the Phillies. So uh, there, there went that. But. <laughs> Um, you know, it was just a, a very human portrayal, and the idea that a, a baseball player I rooted for, who was an all-star, was actually a very fragile human being, and you know, he certainly re- revisited that topic uh, in other books later on, and we learned more about his life. You know, when Tim McGraw came along, and you know, he died, died tragically young. And by the way, my friend Sharon is a great supporter of Team McGraw. Runs in their their marathons and half marathons, and uh, 
it's been you know she's been nice enough to to let me and my partner Jason Fry uh, you know help, help support that cause now and then. So um, you know that's uh, a plug for that. But uh, Screwball just you know just brought me. I mean, in terms of histories of the Mets, uh, Leonard Poppet wrote a book uh, called New York Mets: The Whole Story in 1970, and a, a, a uh, an update of it in '74 covering the second pennant. That was a great source for me. Jack Lang wrote a similar book, a little less colorful. Came out around '86. Um, Leonard Schechter wrote a book called Once Upon the Polo Grounds. Which there was a, I, I'm always amazed, and this is, I think, why one of the reasons maybe that I've stayed a Mets fan beyond the Duck and, the, and Tom Seaver is there's always been so much to read about them that they're such a, I, I think, you know, a quote I came across in my World Series 86 research of a, you know, a literate people's team is the Red Sox or some such nonsense. And, you know, there's so, so many books written about the Mets after 62 and 63, after 69 and 70 and 73, you know, kind of trailed off, and now it's, you know, it, it's a different kind of, of Mets, you know, more of the historian, reporter type people like uh, me and, and Matt, who, uh, you know, so, sort of doing our research. But, you know, so many of, of the beat writers who, who covered it, George Vesey's book, um, about... Uh, the Joy and Mudville was a, a, a fantastic, you know, 69 yielded so many books, and Casey Stengel yielded so many books, so and I really love, you know, that most, you know, I, I once wrote, wrote for a topic, an article on topic, uh, this topic, uh, great Mets books, and I said, the Mets and Astros came into uh, existence together, the Astros had Jimmy win the toy cannon, we have the cannon, C-A-N-O-N. Of uh, great Mets books. As, as far as uh, baseball books overall, besides Mets ones, um, you know, The Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn, any of Roger Angel's collections, and you know, Roger Angel's a great influence on our blog and both me and Jason. Um, there was a book written about the Giants about 25 years ago called The Giants of the Polo Grounds by Noel Hind, which I think is one of just amped up my fascination. So, um, you know, I, baseball is just such a writable, readable sport that um, there's always there's always something. And I am going to throw in Mets by the Numbers by Matthew Silverman and John Springer because it's out of a book and uh, one, one of the great histories. So I'm going to break your rule there. But uh, Matt did a great job on that as well as John Springer. So. I, I have one. Oh. <laughs> I did have a question. Now that's out, you say, oh, gosh, what about this game? I, I can't believe I didn't put this in. Are there any that, that come spilling out that you're like, yeah, every, how did I even leave this out? Every game is like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it I had like 900 games during my winnowing down process, and then I got very stringent and merciless, and I was down to 661. <laughs> so my yeah, there's and every now and then still I hear, you know, like when get the exact achievement that was being celebrated. Well, I think it was when, when Hawk Taylor, who was a catcher in 64 Mets, died. And he talked about he like hit the first pinch hit grand slam in Mets history. I'm like, how did I leave that out? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I try to, you know, rationalize that, well, if something is a, you know, a really unusual, I can tell a really unusual story around it, or it becomes one of those, gee, I had no idea type of things, and you just 
And, and one of my little secrets has been that there's way more than 500 games in the series because and you'll really see it later on. Like for example, when I, you get to 1985, the, the temptation is to have 20, 24 Dwight Gooden wins in there. <laughs> but, you know, it becomes a little repetitive <laughs> if, you, if you keep doing that. And there are a couple of times where I sort of bundle wins together that, uh, you know... To, I, one of my entries is it's the game where he, he breaks Seaver's record for most consecutive wins in a year and the reason that's big besides the fact that it's a record is it's the same moment that Tom Seaver's winning his 300th game so it gives me an excuse to keep revisiting Seaver but there was also a game five days earlier where he shuts out the Expos and he's brilliant and, and, the, and he's you know the Bill Gullickson throws at Gary Carter because there's no will there so Gooden throws it, Bill Gullickson, but acts like, huh, not me, in, in that way pitchers do. And I wanted to use them both. It's like, I can't have like just another, isn't Dwight Gooden great type of uh, thing. The same thing happens in August. He, he strikes out 16 for the last time. Then he wins the 20th game five days later. So I kind of like smush those each of four into two and things like that. I smush, in, in, the, in this volume, I smush the two one nothing wins of Cardwell and Kuzman into one entry as just the second game of a doubleheader. So, do a lot of... Yeah, again, I don't think the reader is going to care that they're getting more than 500. But, you know, <laughs> you, you, know you have to have some sort of parameter in your mind. Otherwise, you know, as, as, as the person who is sitting there making the rules for a thing for which there is no commissioner, uh, you'll go crazy. So, um, But there, there are games... I, I think we just passed the 24th anniversary of the first, maybe only game in Mets history where there wasn't a single assist a win that Sid Fernandez and Rick Aguilera pitched it was just like 24 years ago yesterday it's like I didn't have that in there and I remember that game and I'm like don't beat yourself up like who cares like, what do you mean who cares and these, are the of, these are the sorts of debates you, you would be privy to I was at that game and I found out a month later so okay. I, don't know, I don't know how well, one of the uh, great thing again just, just since we're in 1989 for just a moment um, and it keeps coming up is but I, I find Juan Samuel's one shining moment as a Met. Nobody, you know, you cannot. The weird part, I, I don't, I, I don't want to cast any aspersions in this room, but just my, my experience talking to Mets fans, as, as I have for the last eight years online and in person, since we've been doing Faith and Fear, is it's hard to mention a happy mo- memory without it just spiraling into something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> So if you mention, let's, let's put aside Lenny Dykstra's imprisonment for a moment. If you want to mention, remember when Lenny Dykstra hit that home run to beat the Astros? Oh, God, what an awful trade. <laughs> Juan Samuel. You know, you can, there's always, it's like, it's not even six degrees, it's like three degrees of Juan Samuel when you talk to Mets fans, or, you know, or Vince Coleman, or Richie Henry, or Tom Glavin, my own personal favorite man. So, um... But, you know, I, I want to be able to isolate out that, that good things did happen. And in Juan Samuel's case, uh, as some, anybody who was around 1989 might remember, there was like this massive brawl uh, between uh, the, the nascent nasty boys of uh, Dibble and uh, Norm Charlton and uh, throwing a Tim Tuffle, and it became, became a brawl where Samuel and Strawberry were meeting these guys in the tunnel. And, you know, I mean, you used to, you know, you can never have brawls anymore. And this one was, like, you know, scary. And, like, stop play for half an hour. And, once, and the, the upshot of, of, of the entry is that one time, well, the next day, like, wins over Shea Stadium by getting a big home run off Norm Charlton. He's, like, the hero. And that will last exactly five minutes. And then it goes back to being one time, well, how do we trade for that guy? So um, there's some good in almost every minute. You know what? I'm going to get to the 300th win of Tom Gladden eventually. 
and uh, I'm tempted to leave it to a sentence, but uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll probably treat it with uh, the respect it deserves. <laughs> Don't you think that the, the leaders, which are wonderful, you live for them, but we know that unless you win again the next day, so what? But the losses linger. I hear you talking about the sixth game in 86, and to this day I'd like to talk to David Johnson about why Howard Johnson did not. And it's, I think, that last night, watching the ball game, everybody thought Castillo. They didn't bring up a moment where they want something or to the pain. And, and I think to some extent, I'm, I'm older than most of you guys, and I was at the first Sunday game the Mets ever played in 62. It was the second against the Pirates, a doubleheader. They had been rained out on Saturday, and Bob Miller, the righty, pitched the second game of that doubleheader. The Mets were ahead, and it started to snow. They called the game. Bob Miller finally got his first win on the last Saturday of the season in Los Angeles. But you remember those things because there was pain. And the Mets gave a lot of people who were Mets or Giants and Dodger fans who lost our gods. This was the second coming for us. And it became more precious having lost our teams than it would have been had the Dodgers stayed and the Giants stayed. And I think that the devotion of the Mets fan is such because of that. The Giants fan was more of an elitist fan than a Dodger fan. They were playing Manhattan. They were Broadway's team. And the Dodger fans looked down on the Giant fans because <laughs> the really reverse was true. Lorraine May would create a show when she was married to Devotion. They were more like Yankee fans, even though they were the national league. They were a state of badges. We all hate Yankee fans. We all hate Yankees. But the Dodger Giants, going, I remember growing up and going to the Dodger Giant games, it was far more intense than anything we could say. If Magnum got knocked out of the game, that's all we really care about. If we won, great. Right? If we not Magnum. But the, the love for the Mets, I'm going to be 69 years old in two weeks. That's a really, really important variable, and because uh, it was my second, maybe last chance to have them. Oh. And I was going to love them. And as you know, I stopped writing so I could continue to love and didn't have to deal with, with players and agents. So they were <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I loved doing about Volume 1 specifically were the years that I didn't see. And I knew. We lost 120 games and all the legends that surrounded that and they've been written, I don't want to say death because people can always bring something new to the life, but you know, those are well known and, and one, of, one of my satisfactions here was writing, I think there were 14 wins from 62 in this book and you know, Bob Miller getting his win finally, Ken McKenzie getting the win that put him eternally over 500 and Marv Fronberg getting the walk-off home run and Although 63, Tim Harkness hitting that grand slam 50 years ago today, actually, uh, somebody reminded me. So, you know, I think we, if, if something can be in the bloodstream and DNA of fans, uh, I think one of those things is embracing the wins because they're not losses, as, as you say. And, and I, again, I wasn't around the, you know, the Giants ever. In real life, the New York Giants always had this sense of 
you know, that they were sort of this this tarnished golden age that had, you know, turned, you know, <laughs> no longer golden by the 50s, certainly, other than, you know, for two great years. And I, I think I've, I've always envisioned us as Mets fans as, as they're just not you know, the descendants of both teams that we were, even though, you know, the more I read about it, the more you, you read about the Mets fans and the Polo Browns kind of affecting this, this Dodger lunacy more than you do anything about the Giants, but the people who I've met who were Giant fans who became Mets fans, I get the feeling that we're sort of this blend of the the extrovert, the extrovertness of the Dodger fan and just the, the latter-day Giant fan who sat and just had a hard time enjoying anything. There's always the, the sense that I've gotten, both the rain day notwithstanding. So, um, and again, and, and you know, you could speak to this more than I could, but uh, the idea that there was this whole new, I think called it the new breed, who were not, who were, you know, just were around five years earlier and then took this up as their own thing. So, uh, you know, it's nice to be able, you know, that, that all of us sort of carry that torch forward uh, for, for what came before us. And then one of the things I hope, you know, I've got a lot of reactions people say, I remember that game that you wrote about, which is great to hear. But I also like hearing that I never knew that. And that was fantastic. And tell me more about Tim Harkness. <laughs> and tell me more about Jim McAndrew or whoever. And, uh, you know, again, it, it's sort of, I don't, I don't want to write this from a, from a state of defensiveness, but it kind of goes back to the way the Mets present their history, which is a lackluster, selective fashion, and probably out of their own defensiveness, because, you know, they can, they can acknowledge that they, they, they were lovable losers in 1962, but that, that, that don't cut no ice. <laughs> Uh, in, in modern day, uh, somebody, I, mean, I have no proof for this, but I assume that's one of the reasons they didn't do more the 50th anniversary of their first team last year. And I, I couldn't believe they didn't bring every living 62 Met back. Um, when I, if you're not going to do it now, you're never going to do it. <laughs> and why wouldn't you do it? So. Yeah, I heard <laughs> that, uh, that is the perfect last word, actually. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's really, uh, you've done a, a terrific job. We look forward to the next three volumes and then many other uh, books to come. But once again, the name of the book, uh, The Happiest Recap with author Greg Prince. For those of you who are here, Greg will be selling it for the, in case you don't have it already. For those listening... Please go out and get it. The Happiest Recap with Greg Prince. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. Thank you.